Hey, welcome back to the Journal Feed. My name is Nick Zelt, and this is the only place to be spoon-fed the latest and greatest of emergency medicine. Here, our team combs the literature for the best articles so that you don't have to, and then provides expert summaries no bigger than a spoonful so that you can keep up with the ever-changing landscape of acute care medicine. Of course, if you feel like you should be rewarded for your time listening to or reading the journal feed, we offer CME credits through a partnership with Hippo Education. All the details for that are at our website at journalfeed.org. Now, a quick look ahead at everything that we're going to be covering. First off, another reason to get your flu shot. Then, testing for septic arthritis. After that, early rhythm control and AFib. Then, fractures to tip off abuse. And ending off with droperidol for agitated patients. This, of course, is the audio version of the past week summaries, which this week were brought to you by the wonderful Megan Breed and Clay Smith. And to start us off, we have the first article titled COVID-19, Risk of Death More Than Doubled in People Who Also Had Flu, English Data Show, out of the BMJ. Our old acquaintance and friendly neighborhood virus, the flu virus, luckily already has a vaccine. And no one really knows exactly what's going to happen to the transmission of the flu virus given all the COVID-19 isolation measures. But come on, guys, we can still get vaccinated, so you should probably, you know, do that. Because you know what's worse than one virus? Two viruses. And having one actually makes it less likely that you have the other, but that doesn't mean you can't get both. How does it turn out if you do? So this study used public health data from England from January to April of 2020, and it shows that the odds of death were 2.3 times higher in people who had both the flu and COVID compared to just having COVID alone. Now, if you combined intensive care admission and death into a composite variable, then patients with both viruses had a 6.3 times higher risk of death than those who had neither virus. Most of these cases were in the elderly, and over half of them died. Now, this was just a brief report in the BMJ based on a yet unpublished peer review paper, but it still packs a pretty heavy punch. This study was more robust than the case studies that have been published to date, actually looking at death, hospital, and laboratory records. So in a spoonful, influenza and COVID-19 make for a nasty combination with high mortality. One of these things is vaccine preventable or at least mitigatable, so get your shots. Next, we have the second article titled Diagnostic Accuracy of Synovial Lactate Polymerase Chain Reaction or Clinical Examination for Suspected Adult Septic Arthritis out of the Journal of Emergency Medicine. A red-hot swollen joint. What fun, yeah? Septic arthritis will be high in your differential for this sort of thing because it's likely to destroy the joint fairly quickly. So what's out there to help us towards making that diagnosis? Prior studies showed rather annoyingly that history and inflammatory markers are not very accurate. Synovial white blood cell counts over 50,000 increase the likelihood, and other candidates such as synovial lactate and PCR have also entered the consideration for this, even if there's been honestly some mixed reviews. Needless to say, though, that if you've got a suspicion for this, I mean, come on, guys, you're going to tap that. This was a prospective study that included 71 patients with monoarticular knee arthritis, with a 7% prevalence of septic arthritis among them. Yet again, history and physical were unhelpful in ruling in or out septic arthritis. Synovial lactate was also inaccurate, and same goes for PCR, unfortunately. 
your best bet seems to be a high synovial white blood cell count for a positive likelihood ratio of 22.8 and a gram stain which has a positive likelihood ratio of 32. So this was just a small study without a very diverse population, but it seems to fit well with previous research. In a spoonful, the best predictors for septic arthritis of the knee were synovial white blood cell count and gram stain. Most other things performed poorly, including a synovial lactate, PCR, and even features of a history or physical exam. The third article is titled, Early Rhythm Control Therapy in Patients with Atrial Fibrillation, out of the New England Journal of Medicine. Sometimes it seems like, honestly, kind of like everybody over 60 has atrial fibrillation, but that doesn't mean that we can overlook it. These patients are diagnosed with serious complications like stroke, acute coronary syndrome, congestive heart failure, and even cardiovascular-related deaths at a rate of 5% per year. Those are not odds that I'd want to take myself. The time that these complications seems to be worst is in the first year after diagnosis, which some people consider to be quote-unquote early atrial fibrillation. Thus, would early rhythm control help curb these risks? The authors took patients diagnosed with atrial fibrillation within the past 12 months and randomized them to receive either usual care or rhythm control. All patients in both groups, though, received treatment for cardiovascular conditions, anticoagulation, and rhythm control. Only patients in the rhythm control arm, though, received a combination of pharmacotherapy, mostly consisting of flecainide or amiodarone, cardioversion, and or ablation. The primary outcome was the composite of death from cardiovascular causes, stroke, or hospitalization for ACS or worsening congestive heart failure. And this outcome occurred in 249 patients in the rhythm control group and 316 patients in the usual care group, giving an absolute risk difference of 1.1 per 100 person years. Interestingly, the secondary outcome of total number of nights in the hospital per year was unchanged between the groups. Something to keep in mind about the study is that there was more complications in the treatment group, which is not surprising, they got more treatment, and most of it was related to drug toxicity or the ablations. So these results are actually somewhat unexpected. The AFFIRM trial from 2002, among others, had shown that there was no benefit to early rhythm control. However, this study also included the use of ablation and kept all of the patients on anticoagulation throughout the follow-up period. Unfortunately, this data may not generalize well to the acute care setting, though, since all patients were eligible for either group, and this means that it's most likely that symptomatic patients were excluded. In a spoonful, early rhythm control of atrial fibrillation was associated with a lower risk of pretty much everything we fear from AFib, namely cardiovascular-related death, strokes, and hospitalization for worsening of heart failure or acute coronary syndrome. Then we have the fourth article titled, Identifying Maltreatment in Infants and Young Children Presenting with Fractures. Does Age Matter? Out of the Journal of Academic Emergency Medicine. Like just like last week when we spoke about elder abuse, the opposite end of the spectrum are not without their fair share as well, which is unfortunate. If you recall being a child yourself though, or just spend really any time around kids, then you'll know that kids have bumps and bruises. It's something of an occupational hazard. But what's important to recognize is when injuries hide a darker truth. Some of these will be due to abuse. And when abuse is missed, then rates of recurrence and even death are quite high. Something that could help with spotting these patients though, especially spotting them across the entire range of both racial and socioeconomic spectrums, 
would be to have a standardized criteria for when to pursue comprehensive abuse workups. This study was a scoping review which found 15 studies to answer the key questions about what fractures and at what age ranges should receive routine additional workup for possible abuse. An expert panel decided on recommendations for each type of fracture based on the literature review. All of them excluded incidences where the fractures were easily verifiable to not be due to abuse, such as from car crashes or occurring in public. And here were their conclusions. It is strongly recommended that children less than three years old with one or more rib fractures routinely undergo child abuse evaluation. And it is also strongly recommended that children under 18 months old with either humeral or femoral fractures also routinely get that workup. Subcondylar humerus fractures should probably be excluded from this, though. So, unfortunately, there were too few studies to comment on forearm, hand, lower leg, or foot fractures. As for what your child abuse investigation is going to look like, that's likely to change quite a bit depending on your shop. But either way, it's going to involve getting more tests, and of course, don't be afraid to ask for help. In a spoonful, children less than 3 years old with a rib fracture or less than 18 months old with a humerus or femur fracture need further workup for abuse. And lastly, the fifth article titled a randomized double-blind trial of intramuscular droperidol, ziprazidone, or lorazepam for acute undifferentiated agitation in the emergency department out of the Journal of Academic Emergency Medicine. Agitated patients can be dangerous for you, for the patient, and for other staff. And obviously medication isn't necessarily the first step in calming an agitated patient, but it's certainly in the armory. This study was done a while ago in the early 2000s, but was never published. And since then, droperidol has gotten a black box warning and then had a shortage. But now that it's back, the authors decided to publish. On a side note, I'm really disappointed with this little publishing story because it kind of highlights some of the things that are terribly wrong about our research publication system. But anyways, that's a side note. This was an RCT comparing intramuscular droperidol at 5 mg, ziprazidone at 10 mg, or ziprazidone at 20 mg, and lorazepam at 2 mg for the primary outcome of adequate sedation at 15 minutes. The best was droperidol at 64%. Then it was ziprazidone at 20 mg for 35%, then lorazepam at 29%, and finally, zoprazidone at 10 milligrams for 25%. Originally, the primary outcome was the difference in sedation score. I'm really not surprised that they changed the outcomes because they didn't even decide to publish. But anyways, the original outcome was still best for droperidol anyways. Droperidol also lasted the longest at 90 minutes and was just behind zoprazidone 20 milligrams in the need for additional sedation. Most of the agitated patients from the study were drunk. So given the increase in popularity of, well, a host of drugs since then, like bath salts and other things, this may affect the generalizability. Rates of mild respiratory depression were common in all the groups, but again, droperidol came out on top with the lowest rates at only 12%. No one needed intubation except for one patient who also happened to have a subdural hematoma, and there was no prolongation of the QTC in any group. Let's be honest, this study is a little bit outdated, but it's still relevant and quite positive for the use of droperidol. In a spoonful, droperidol at 5mg IM was a safe and fast way to sedate agitated patients, performing better than ziprazidone or lorazepam. And alright, that's all the articles. Let's do a quick, rapid review of everything that we covered. 
From the first article, yet another reason to get your annual flu shot. Co-infection with influenza and COVID-19 is a deadly combination. From the second article, suspecting septic arthritis? Tap the joint and look closely at the synovial white blood cell count and gram stain. Everything else wasn't nearly as helpful. Third, we didn't used to be in a hurry, but maybe we should pick up our socks a little bit. This study showed better outcomes for early rhythm control in atrial fibrillation. The fourth article gave us a quick rule of thumb for fractures and child abuse. Children less than three years old with a rib fracture or less than 18 months old with a humerus or femur fracture need further workup for abuse. And finally, from the fifth article, Drupirodol did well for quickly and safely sedating patients in the emergency department compared with Zeprazidone or Lorazepam. Links to all the articles summarized can be found at journalfeed.org, where if you haven't already, you can subscribe to our newsletter and get daily spoon feeds through your emails. Our goal here is to provide better patient care through spoon feeding, and so we're trying to help you keep up with the latest research one spoonful at a time. Thank you.